0: Everyone, I am Aviva Rumani and this is Kindred Cast. Unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. Today, we get the lowdown on the state of audio entertainment from one of its leading voices, Malcolm Gladwell. The best-selling author, pundit, and podcaster who serves as president of Pushkin Industries tells Liontree's head of growth and business development, Alex Michael, why his company is investing so aggressively to establish new creative standards for audiobooks and podcasts. And because it's Malcolm, you'll get contrarian viewpoints on everything from remote work to the state of higher education. This one is pure gold. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Alex Michael,
1: co-head of Liontree Growth here at Liontree. And today we have a spectacular guest. I'll call it spectacular. We have, I'll just say it, Malcolm Gladwell on the podcast. Malcolm Gladwell, this is a thrill for me. And for everyone here at Kindercast to have you on the show, we have no shortage of things to talk about. So I will keep it pretty sharp here as we move through. But in terms of just a refresh on all the things that Malcolm has done for our listeners, Malcolm is a journalist, author, speaker, podcaster, humanitarian. I maybe that one. I can't corroborate. He is a world-class runner. Well,
2: I mean, I'm not a world-class runner. You are
1: a big runner. (laughs) Big runner. We'll talk about your shoes later. He is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, five number ones. We got that right. Little Books, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, David and Goliath. He is also, and we'll talk a lot about this, the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, which is an audio content company for both podcasts and audiobooks. And related, he has two audiobooks that have come out exclusively in that format, which is The Bomber Mafia, excellent, and a more recent one, which is Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon, which I just listened to, which was incredible. Anyhow, Malcolm is also the host, of course, of Revisionist History, my favorite podcast, I think 80 plus episodes, and he also is the host of Broken Record with Rick Rubin. He has been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. Malcolm, I'll stop. (laughs) But thank you so much for being here. No, my pleasure. It is such a thrill. So Malcolm, we're going to touch on a bunch of things. The first thing I want to talk about is the Paul Simon Miracle and Wonder Book, because first of all, again, if you haven't listened to it, it's incredible. And it really unlocks why audiobooks exist, because the narrative, the storytelling, plus the music, it's just an incredible listen. So kudos on that. But you have a chapter about creativity in particular, and when as artists people peak in their creativity. And so I was hoping you could start there. It was really interesting. You compared Paul Simon with Cezanne, with Picasso, with the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones anecdote was wild. If you could just give us a little summation of that, and then I'd love to go deeper on that point.
2: Yeah. So this is an idea that comes from an economist named David Galenson, who was very interested in trying to understand the different ways creative genius is manifest. And he makes this argument that creative genius is bimodal. There's two very distinct distributions. There's the distribution of the people who do all of their most important and valuable work very early on in their careers. And then there's another group, which we tend to overlook, some would argue, who don't do their best work until the end of their careers. So Picasso and Cézanne are the classic examples of this. Picasso does his best work in his 20s. Cézanne does his best work in his late 50s, 60s. And we lump them together, and Galenstein would say, no, they're totally different Picasso is what he would call a conceptual innovator, someone who has a kind of breakthrough idea and very rapidly enacts that idea in his art. Cezanne is someone who is not conceptual. He's experimental. Everything is trial and error. He doesn't have any big ideas. You have a conversation with Cezanne when he's 30 years old and you ask him what he's doing. He can't tell you. Picasso can tell you. Cézanne, it takes him so long. If you work through trial and error without a guiding idea, it takes you your whole career to reach your point of genius. And so that's why Picasso If You go to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and look at that room full of Cézannes, the greatest room of Cézannes in the world. Look at the dates that they're painted. It's all the end of his life. Yeah. So my argument in Miracle and Wonder is that Paul Simon is Cézanne. But he, but he has
1: a hit early and late, though.
2: He does. So I suppose the u- uber explanation... He's 23 he, and
1: he's 56,
2: I believe, is what he's, you saying. Maybe he's both Picasso and Cezanne. <laughs> What's interesting about him as an artist is that he does this thing that almost no rock and roll musician is capable of doing, which he hits his creative peak in his mid to late 40s. You mentioned the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are basically finished creatively by the time they're 29. So they're same age as Paul Simon, right. Keith Richardson, Mick Jagger. By 72, after they do Let It Bleed, Beggar's Banquet, Sticky Fingers, and I've forgotten the fourth. They do the Exile on Main Street. Yep. Four fantastic albums over the space of about five years. Incredible. Finishing in 72. They're finished. Yeah. You could argue some girls is, but it's not really on the started par out, of yeah. those. Paul Simon, at the age of 29, is just getting started. Graceland is still ahead of him. I mean, one of the greatest albums of the 20th century is 26 years away. (laughs) One of the things we did for Miracle and Wonder is we called up famous musicians and asked them what your favorite Paul Simon record was. Many of them, you know, David Byrne thinks the best Paul Simon record is a record that Simon does in his 60s. So like, you could argue he's musically relevant for four decades you cannot name me another contemporary musician. I think everyone's going to go home and try to... Who is in the conversation, yeah. legitimately in the conversation for four decades, maybe even five.
1: And it's not... One is not better or worse. You're not making them relative. It's just a question of how people get how you to work. the creative peak. Yeah. What should we take away from that? What did Paul Simon do that was different? You certainly delve into his cultural background, coming from Queens and his ethnic background. But what did you uncover in terms of why there are those differences?
2: He's interested... The experimental artist is the artist who is interested in taking a different kind of creative risk. So he's interested, or she is interested in doing experiments, entering into creative projects where the outcome is unknown. The Rolling Stones do not experiment. I mean, I hate to pick on them in this way, but (laughs) there is a specific kind of thing they are doing, kind of R&B that's been moved through their English musical heritage, but it's white people doing r&b doing their version of r&b there's almost no point in paul simon's career where you can identify the genre to which he belongs even when he's doing folk music in the early 60s he's not really a folk musician he's just playing it on bridge over troubled water is a gospel song is he a gospel singer? No, he's not a gospel singer. But he just decided to do a gospel experiment. And he's so brilliant that his gospel but experiment. But it actually works.
1: Because most people are like, yeah. oh, we're going into a new genre. And they're like, oh, no, please go back to where you started. He does experiments that fail. Right. He
2: does Cape Man, a Broadway musical, which is a to this day when Paul talks about Cape Man. I mean, it's painful. He really poured his heart and soul into it. It didn't work. But unless you're willing to embark on the experiment that doesn't work, you'll never be able to do the experiment that does work failure is baked into the model and he's one of the rare musicians who can
1: handle the sting of failure and it worked so what i've been thinking about malcolm to put you on the spot is where are you in this oh well you know you have had output now for decades all the hits as we just talked about the bestsellers where do you classify yourself in that?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose I'm a, a mild version of. First of all, this dichotomy is intended for creative geniuses. I don't number <laughs> myself as them. Fair but enough. But well, I'm a mild. You deprecate here. I'm a mild saison.
1: Mild saison. I, okay.
2: I don't think I have a single governing philosophy or concept. I don't invent anything. I do like doing experiments, so I have mixed it up. I've been, over the course of my career, a newspaper reporter, a magazine writer, a book writer, a podcaster, a speaker, and I guess that's it. Humanitarian. Um, But within the world of writers, those are all relatively distinct things to try. And most writers tend to focus on one of those things or two. And I've
1: preferred to try many of them. So what does that trajectory say, though, about you? Because you have an... Uncanny ability to connect with audiences, many, many audiences. And you have evolved, as you said, through these different mediums, including podcasts and audiobooks. And we'll talk about Pushkin. What's it say about content creators today and authors, really, and writers, just how they have to storytell? Do you think you have to do the things you're doing now to be successful? What yes. does it say about our media landscape?
2: I remember I was very happy at the Washington Post. I spent 10 years there. And I remember I was part of a committee that was struck by the head of the Washington Post company, Don Graham. And he gathered a group of people from the newsroom to discuss why is it that young people don't read newspapers. This was probably 1992. And I was like, wait, young people don't read newspapers? And he was like, yeah, young people don't read newspapers. And my first response was, I got to get out of here. Right, This is doomed. Bad signal. So I got out of there and I went to the New Yorker. There was a moment when young people read the New Yorker. And then I got a feeling that the world was shifting again and I got itchy feet. I would ride the subway in New York, and I would see, whereas when I came to New York, people on the subway were reading books or magazines, they now had earphones in their ears. And I was like, oh, I used to own the commute. I don't own the commute anymore. And that's a bad thing. Yeah. What year is this? Six, seven years ago. Okay. And then Jacob Weisberg comes to me and says, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah, I definitely have to try that. Because of this thing that, like, there are all these kids walking around with earphones. Like... What are they listening to? If I don't make something for them, then I'm lost to them.
1: You're going to lose that whole audience. Yeah. But yeah, and you've talked about this with Bill Simmons, obviously another prolific writer now podcast, but he doesn't write anymore. You seem to have come back to writing a little bit here with your newsletter. Oh yeah. And I'm working on a book. I mean, I'm always... Do you find it much easier? I guess, what is the craft now that you've sort of said up? you need to do that to be successful and reach new audiences and big audiences. But how do you feel about that switch in terms of the ease or the comfort or frankly, your interest for it?
2: I like it all. What I like is the idea that in each form, you have to craft your story for the genre. So audio is very emotional, character-driven. Writing is much easier to be analytical, and newsletters are 1,200 words, and you're out. Can't go longer than that. Books, you've got 70,000, 80,000 words. I just like the variety, because I like the idea of matching the story to the form. There's a whole class of things that work, for example, as podcasts that could never work as chapters of books. And the great discovery of, I didn't realize that when I started podcasts. And now I was like, oh, there's all this stuff I could do. I would never have made it into the light of day before, but now it can. I'm writing the first episode of the current season of Revision's History right now. None of this would work in print of the first episode. It's a goof. Playful, mischievous stuff is really hard to do on a page. Right. It's so easy to do in a
1: podcast. I think it speaks to your experimentation, to your point of maybe Cezanne or so. you've been experimenting with all these mediums and finding what works even while within one medium over many years now. Before we leave the miracle and wonder and that point on creativity and the old masters young genius, this is largely business audience, although many different people now listen. How does this apply, do you think, to the business world? And you've now become an executive with Pushkin. Any takeaways there? How do we think about that? The famous stories of Ray Kroc becoming CEO and McDonald's in late 50s or whatever. And then you have Silicon Valley, where we worship 25 year olds. Is there an application to the business world in terms of what you're doing here? Have you thought about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that the conceptual innovator and the experimental innovator occupy different positions and often are different kinds of people is an incredibly useful one. You have to ask yourself, well, what is the kind of innovation my company needs? If we are in a mature market, maybe we want an experimental innovator. If we're making something up out of whole cloth, you want Picasso. You want the blazing genius who sees something and no one else sees. The only lesson of that is don't fall in love with one model. It's this question of fit, I suppose, is the thing that comes out of that.
1: Right. Interesting. So let's talk about Pushkin. You're president, co-founder. Pushkin is the audio production. We we talked about business, uh, does podcasts and now does audiobooks, Bomber Mafia. And we talked about that in Miracle and Wonder Now. How do you like the business world now that you're actually a steward of it? I'm just curious how that journey has been for you. When was Pushkin founded? Just over three years ago. Three years ago. And Uh, disclaimer, we're investors, we're big fans. Yeah. Uh, What was the origin story to that? I guess you talked a little bit about Jacob seeing that rough, but how do you like being on that side of the table?
2: Oh, it's super interesting. It's, you know, it's nerve wracking. And I should say that my co-founder, Jacob Weisberg, bears 98% of the burden of making the business work, which I'm grateful. And he turns out to be very good at that. So I'm doubly grateful. I realized many of my instincts are completely ill-suited for the business world because I'm financially risk-averse. And the idea of yeah, we are up to 68 people, I would never have built in three years a company with 68 people because I would have been so terrified of paying 68 salaries every What month. happens? That's Jacob having the confidence. There's a certain kind of confidence that business-minded people have that I don't have. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night knowing that whatever the knot is that we'd have to make every month, there's a certain kind of multitasking. I'm not a big multitasker. And I realize in looking at Jacob that being a CEO of a startup requires that you do 50 things simultaneously. I just don't understand how he even gets through the day. It's like incredible to me. I guess I've gotten this really fascinating lesson in the importance of specialization, of dividing up responsibilities according to people's interests and abilities. And we're very well suited. I am the one who makes stuff and he's the one who builds the organization.
1: Infrastructure. Why take on this particular genre? What do you think about the future of audiobooks and I guess podcasting? I mean, spoken word in general, you obviously see an opportunity, your investors do. How do you see the landscape today? And how does this become a huge business? If you concern yourself with that, which I guess you do at the I end do. of the day. I yeah. do. I do. Yeah.
2: Well, our value proposition from the beginning was that there was room in the audio landscape, first of all, for a quality player, an HBO. We wanted to be the smart ones, not out of any kind of snobbery, but just because we thought that was our niche. Yep. That is not the fastest way to make a lot of money in podcasting. But we think it's a good long-term strategy. In audiobooks, my one big contribution to the company has been, I have been the one pushing the move into audiobooks the hardest. And there, my position is that traditional publishers have been asleep at the wheel. They have considered audiobooks to be an afterthought they've invested no money or time or attention or creativity in making them. They put you in a sound booth for four days, you read the manuscript of your book, and they spend $10,000 turning it into an audiobook. The idea that that is a good model in 2022, when the audience who's interested in it, who we want to reach, their expectation about the quality of content is so much higher. Absolutely. They're not like, these are people who have been raised on Pixar and Disney, who in every aspect of their creative life have been exposed to things done at the absolute highest level, who've watched HBO reinvent quality television. And yet, when it comes to an audiobook, we're really going to expect them to listen to seven hours of an author who is not trained in reading, droning on into a microphone. It just drives me to distraction. And then Audible, we think, I think, and I don't even think this will be news to Audible, that their business model is not encouraging of premium product. They're very interested in Selling as many audiobooks as they can for the lowest possible price, which was a fine strategy for many, many years. We think that now the world is ready for audiobooks that are premium priced because they're a premium quality. So that's what
1: we are trying to pursue. How do you reconcile that investment level that you talked about, which is obviously right? You know it, that it was sort of limited investment and people just reading into a microphone, to the fact that Audible is a gigantic business. If people have appreciated the size of this multi multi multi-billion dollar business so clearly the money was there but what was the disconnect it makes so much sense to do what you're doing and listening to your books it just pops out the page why now and i guess because of who you are you're the right person but it seems incongruous with the success of that format historically to not have more of this and i guess you're ushering a new era and you're going to bring it with you
2: couple of reasons one is So, we're talking about investments in an audiobook that could be 20x or even 30x what the traditional audiobook is. So, in the old days, you would make an audiobook for 10,000. We don't have a problem making an audiobook for 500,000. So, that's a tough thing. If you're making a lot of money making them for 10 grand, it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around spending an extra 490,000. Second is talent doesn't scale, it's hard. Miracle and wonder is the product of six or seven people who are at the top of their game working on that for months. It's not scalable. If you ask me, could we do 10 productions a year on that level of quality as miracle and wonder? I would say not yet. We don't have 10 people with that caliber of talent at the moment. We, I think we'll get there, but it's hard. If you want to do a thousand at that level, I think you're really going to have a...
1: That's the struggle. That's, but the that's struggle. where the money is, to your point. Yeah.
2: We think... So it makes perfect sense to me that Audible has pursued a commodity business, but we think it's there's room. Okay, well, so yeah. far
1: it's paying we, off. Yeah, you know, we want to nice. sell the broken back. It's pretty exciting. Are you going to do any of the older books as an audiobook?
2: Well, funny you should say that.
1: Yes, it requires
2: some delicate rights, right, right, negotiations, right. and some of the people who I would have interviewed for some of the other books would no longer be alive. But yes, we did a revision of Michael Lewis's classic liars poker that's right i just saw that and with a a accompanying podcast as an experiment to see whether we can and the experiment so far has gone very well can we take an old title breathe new life into it and get the word out about it by using our podcast platforms?
1: i think you can when you're talking about people like you and michael lewis i think people follow you wherever you go it'll be interesting to see those who don't have that following can they have that type of success but we'll see so Malcolm, we talked about Pushkin and your involvement there. I want to interweave that a little bit with hopefully the tail end of the pandemic and where we're going from here in terms of maybe future of work and where we live and things you've examined. But as president of Pushkin, you have sixty-eight employees. You said, "Yeah." Do they have to go to an office? Will they have to go to an
2: they office? They are like most people. We're ramping it up. I think I don't know whether we are three or four days a week now. But we were very conscious of the price that's paid in creative work when people aren't face-to-face. Face. It's really hard. So I don't mind when a producer is cutting tape, if they want to stay home, fine. But when we do a table read, which is the most creatively important thing we do, you have to be there. My rule is you got to be there. Um, what about
1: society at large? What about corporations? You spend a lot of time looking at a lot of different corporations, whether it's McDonald's or countless numbers. Where do you think we're going as society in terms of work here, thanks to the pandemic or just natural evolution?
2: Well, I wish I had a crystal ball. I think there will be tremendous short-term pressure on the part of some employees to do a substantial amount of work remotely. My worry is that there's clear winners and losers with that. I don't know whether younger employees fully appreciate how much they lose out by not working closely face-to-face with people with more experience. Really hard to learn remotely. Really hard for your boss to know how good you are. Really hard to get promoted. Really hard to get noticed. Really hard to get a of bunch of stuff if you're at home in your apartment. I think that A lot of young people are maybe a little bit naive about what they're missing out on. The commute may be a pain in the butt, but you get something from showing up that you can't
1: get at home. Interesting. I wasn't sure how you were going to answer that. I could have thought that. But where I was thinking maybe, perhaps, was there was a certain democratization to Zoom. You wrote about the talent myth that we promote the wrong people based on qualities that aren't necessarily the work product. I felt at least that Zoom was a great equalizer. We were all boxes. There was no pandering or office dynamics that are perhaps the downside of that. I'm just curious if you thought about that in light of the Zoom remote work.
2: Yeah, I have heard. I know that Adam Grant has a really interesting argument. He's the professor at Penn. Yeah. He observed the way his students conducted themselves on Zoom as opposed to in person and thought it was easier to get for people who'd otherwise stay quiet to speak up on Zoom. Now, That's Adam Grant, who is incredibly skilled at this kind of thing and very good at coming up with ways to draw people out. I wouldn't be surprised if the way he used the online experience is a lot more sophisticated than the way most of us do. I'm fully aware that there are some pluses to it. You can be more productive. But what is the single most important issue facing working Americans under the age of 30? It's a cluster of things around mental health. No question about that. These are issues that exist today on a scale that did not exist 25 years ago. If you talk to any college administrator and have them compare their jobs today to their jobs 30 years ago, that's all they'll talk about. 30 years ago, we didn't talk about mental health issues. Today, that's what we do. If you accept the fact that that is the single gravest problem facing young people in this country, how can you want to perpetuate a system where they are working at home alone in their apartments? i mean it's nuts it is nuts the last thing they need is social isolation a, a universe that encourages them just to work all the time but That freedom is work. not
1: it's actually a jail in it's a way. jail yeah. i
2: mean the issue to me is not how productive are you in the short term it is how healthy and happy you are in the long term i'm not interested in working with people for eight months I'm interested in working with them for five years until they get to the point where they can stand on their own two feet and go out in the world and do something great. That's my model of what it means to be a boss at Pushkin. We're in this together and I'm going to teach you. I've seen people who've been with me for two or three years and I compare them to the way they were in year one and I can see the difference. Yeah. That's because we interact and COVID, I think, slowed down that process of learning a great deal. And now I think we're back and it's picking up again. But if I can't interact with you,
1: I can't get you to where I want you to be. And that is bad for me and worse for you. Interesting. So related, do you think big cities, there was a lot of talk during the pandemic that big cities were going to perhaps hollow out or atrophy. people going to different states. Do You frankly have a more nomadic lifestyle in those very precious 20s that we're talking. Do you see that perpetuating or do you think the big cities are just going to be back to where they were and these are hubs for society and culture?
2: Yeah. Well, I remember always Adam Gopnik, one of my colleagues at The New Yorker, used to tell me the story of, he did a story on Mort Zuckerman, who was a you know, big real estate <laughs> developer in yeah. New York, very successful one. And It was during one of those periodic New York City crises, and Adam is walking around New York with Mort Zuckerman, and Mort's about to make a series of really, really major bets on New York City. And Adam says to him, why are you betting on New York City when things look so gloomy? And Zuckerman says, as long as there are young people in the world, there will be cities. And his point was that cities are engines of romance, They are the single most efficient and exhilarating way for young people to meet each other and to fall in love. And as long as young people want to meet each other and fall in love, they're going to want to come to cities. Now, we may lose the family with three kids totally understand why they want to leave the city. They've always left the city. Maybe that got accelerated during COVID. Totally fine with that. doesn't mean that cities are over. It just means that cities are going back to what they were supposed to be for, which is they are engines of creativity for young people. And they're places where if you're rich enough and you're older, you can stay. But there's never a model where New York City had this large, happy group of middle-class families with three kids, right. never. right? Unless they were too poor to go anywhere and were crowded in a tiny tenement in the Bronx or so rich that they had a seven-room duplex on Park Avenue.
1: Right. So right. always seeing now is what we've always seen. Always seen, so no change there. What about, you mentioned learning on the job, almost like an apprenticeship. One of your favorite topics and listening to a lot of your revisionist history podcasts, is higher education and beyond revisionist history. What did the pandemic do there? One of your favorite things is the cafeterias at these colleges, that they are these glistening city on a hill, Bowdoin's versus, I forget what's the other ambassador. And people pay all this. But what happens when that was a reason to do it and then you didn't get to go to the cafeteria? What does that mean? And where are we going from here on higher education? Well, we
2: exposed the obscenity of the promise of higher education when they went all zoom for two years and still charged you the same amount of money. That was wild. In retrospect, what they did was so unspeakable. Like I'm going to charge you 70 grand a year. So your kid can sit at home in front of his computer and passively participate in some distant thing that has nothing to do with the learning experience that he signed up for. And also it's forcibly reminded us how much of the learning experience of that age is social. That We send children to colleges to learn around people, because learning around people is an experience that is without peer. If this was simply about you learning about 19th century English literature, you can do that on your own. It's not. It's about sitting in a class with other people learning about English literature in the 19th century and learning from them. It clarified in our minds what the college experience is supposed to be for. Is that enough value? Is it worth
1: 70 grand a year? No. Is it that learning environment or is it this gateway to adulthood and frankly, the stamp of the degree? What if you never showed up, but we said in four years you could have a degree from Harvard. Would you pay the same thing? Would I? Well, do you think it's society? We probably would. A lot of people probably would.
2: I do think the bucket of intangible benefits over and above the brand value of the institution is considerable. And it would be more so if I think colleges had a clearer sense of what they were preparing their students for. Most modern creative industries, cognitively complex industries, significant portion of the work is done in teams. If you look on college campuses, what percentage of work of cognitively significant work is done in teams? It's vanishingly small, which strikes me as being... Because we think people are going to cheat or do the other nuts. people's work. It's an interesting... So this be preparing us yeah. for a world where we work in teams and they don't work in teams. Right. Why wouldn't a college spring up and say all of the work at this college is done in teams? You're not going to get individual grades. Right. We're going to put you in a series of teams. All evaluation of you is going to be based on, does every college need to be that way? No. But the failure of colleges to differentiate, to meet the changing complexity of the market that they're serving, strikes me as so ludicrous. These people are brain dead. They're do all really doing <laughs> exactly the same thing. It makes absolutely no sense. It would be as if Lion Tree went to Goldman and you just took notes for six months, hired a bunch of Goldman people, built an exact replica of the Goldman building in some other part of Manhattan, called your company something that was G&S and just said, we're going to do exactly what they do. You would never in a million years do that. It would make no sense, right? Yes. That is what higher education does. They are all trying to replicate the Ivy League model with varying degrees of success there's a handful of people who don't want to follow that but that is so nuts on every level i i can't even i'm in a loss for words
1: do you think we'll have ultimately at any point more vocational training and an apprenticeship model that has been sort of generations and hundreds of years that seems yeah. to have dissipated but the idea that you go to learn about something you want to go do whether it's engineering mechanic whatever it is do you think that'll ever come back here
2: I hope so. You know, all I know is I have a friend who's a contractor in upstate New York, who at various points in the last couple of years, a small contractor, has had thirteen open carpentry positions at seventy-five thousand dollars a year plus benefits to start. Now, upstate, that's a lot of money. Those are good jobs. Can't fill them because a lot of kids who would normally fill those are getting one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt going to college without any clear idea of what they're going to do with that degree when they get out. So. There is a massive mismatch. Try and find a plumber in New York City can't. Now, plumbers make a lot of money. Yeah. They make a lot lot more money than like teachers, but nobody wants to be a plumber. Why is that? Everyone is super excited about the coming Internet of Things. And the assumption is that when we want to put connectivity in every device of meaning in our society, that there will be someone around to do that. There is no one around to do that. The Internet of Things, under any scenario is going to involve hundreds of thousands of trained people who can execute what is going to be an incredibly valuable but incredibly complex task, which is bringing a universe of things that are dumb and making them smart. Where are those people? They're nowhere to be found. Right. Our indifference to these kinds of questions in our society baffles me. Once again, it's a one-size-fits-all model of higher education that neglects things like Apprenticeships. Right.
1: Preparation for a wholly different set of crafts. I think we have your next business. I think Malcolm University. <laughs> I think we're gonna do it, we're gonna brand it. This will be the directing consumer Man, apprenticeship I don't
2: with Malcolm. To be the president of universities may be the worst job in the world. <laughs>
1: oh, this is pretty cushy. It's pretty nice. No, nice goodness. title. It's a nightmare. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we, now we know how you feel about higher education yeah. and what may not happen, I guess. But you don't see any change anytime soon. I think that's the, also the punchline here.
2: No, I think the real value of some of the online digital education startups is not so much that digital education is superior to traditional education, although in many cases, I think it is. Their real value is that they will shake up the status quo to the point that traditional educational providers
1: will have to change or die. That's their value. Even the best ones. Even the ones, the Ivy Leagues, those people. I
2: I think those guys have so much money in the bank, it doesn't matter. But, you know, the kind of one tier down. They're going to have to innovate. They're going to have to innovate. They're going to have to innovate. And that's a fantastic thing.
1: Malcolm, I want to do a lightning round of getting to know you a little bit better, which I think is fun. And your newsletter is kind of fun because it talks about some of this stuff. Okay. First of all, we talked about you're an avid runner, big time runner. What is your favorite running city area? What is a place that you're like, wow, when I lace on the shoes and go on that run, I am incredibly excited for.
2: I'm a big fan of urban runs, There's some wonderful urban runs in America. There's the loop around Lake Austin. There's streetcar tracks in New Orleans. There's a reservoir in Central Park in New York City. I have a list of favorites of those whenever I go places.
1: That could be a good newsletter. Yes. no. I have actually Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about my... I will apprentice for you in the content here. My favorite, yeah. Favorite book you've read recently or just you're like, guys, you have to read this thing. An actual book. I was just talking about this today, actually.
2: I had lunch with Tim Ferriss, and I was telling Tim he had to read a book about a guy named, and I've forgotten, I think his first name is Harold Duveen. He was the great art dealer of the early part of the 20th century. And he's the guy who creates markets in old masters out of nowhere. The people in the world of NFT today are trying to do really what Duveen did 100 years ago. They would do well to go back. So there's a marvelous biography of Duveen, which I read quite recently by someone named Behrman, which is an extended New Yorker piece that was turned into a book. It's just a delight.
1: What's the name of the book? It's called
2: Duveen. D u v e e n. Okay. Um, it's brilliant. And it applies so much to people trying to make a market out of
1: NFTs. Let's go there because one of the other questions was like, do you buy tokens? You have a favorite token? That's my new metaverse question. Are you into this world? Is this a, a real thing for you?
2: No, it's all over my head. My father did this and taught me this, which was no what you know, and in all the areas that you don't know what you know, keep your
1: mouth shut and ask lots of questions. You're not doing a lot of talking on the metaverse. I'm not doing any talking. All right. How about TV shows? Do you stream TV shows, Netflix, HBO, those things? Do you do that? What everyone else watches. Okay, so what's the most recent thing that you've been super
2: jazzed about? Well, I went back and... been going working my way through the Bureau. You know, that French... I don't know that one. That was a big deal a couple years ago. I've been trying to get through the new HBO show, The Gilded Age, but I suspect I'm not the right demographic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I see you as inventing Anna. No, I, with my free television time, I tend to watch sports as opposed to...
1: You're a huge sports fan. Yeah, I'm it. A big sports uh, fan. It's, it is very cool. Your discussions with Bill Simmons, we mentioned about it. Very interesting. What do you think, by the way, of now kids, high school, college, making money? Are you in favor of that? The name, image, and likeness? Phenomenon.
2: Yes, I'm very much in favor of this. Uh, couldn't have happened soon enough. Ending the sham that was college amateur athletics was very important. I think they should separate out the true amateurs from the non-amateur. In other words, have a kind of semi-professional league in the NC2A, which are the schools that want to recruit the guys who are bound for the NBA and who are only going to be a stick around for a year or two. Have them play in one league. Let's have another NCAA AA tournament. For the schools who want to do it the old way, where everyone's there for four years and are not going anywhere else. Sounds
1: complicated, Malcolm. I don't know how you're yeah, put I that mean, one it's not more complicated than the things well, we Well, but do the every Olympics day. are an attempt at that in some ways. We went to the pro model and it kind of is a hybrid. I, yeah. I don't know if it's really yeah.
2: worth it. The thing that made college basketball really interesting was the idea that over four years you got to know the characters and the personalities. And now we've taken that away in large part. We can restore while still having a place for the really super gifted guys who are going well, on. maybe it's
1: baseball's model. I don't know how familiar but baseball, you either declare for the draft and you go in at 18 and you don't go to college or you have to stay till you're a junior. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's... I would be open to that as well. well. And football, also, you have to go through a couple of years. I guess, yeah. Different sports. Anyhow, I think it's super interesting. There's gonna be a lot of money flowing into these oh, yeah. kids mm-hmm. and it'll be very interesting how colleges and society handles that. That's a yeah. whole different animal. My
2: one idea for this, which I floated years ago, was a professional sports team, basketball team, should be able to draft a basketball player and leave him in college for as long as they want and put all of the money in escrow. And it wouldn't count against the cap. So if you like a player as a freshman, you don't have to force him to come out immediately. You can say, stick around. You're being coached by a great coach and get an education, be a mature player, have fun. And you can come and join us in two years. Yeah, well, they kind of fun. do that
1: in Europe. I mean, they draft. These, yeah. They have the rights to these players. You're saying bring that technology, yeah. yeah. But now also beneficially, they'll make lots of money if they're good and maybe don't have to leave. Yes, there's right? also if that. They, if they want to yeah. make money, they can do it. All right, so wrapping up your podcast. All right, so you have your podcast. This is a question from my daughter, Eliza. She's 11, which is, what are podcasts you listen to that's not your own? That was oh. her big question
2: for uh-huh. you. Well, the one I got addicted to during COVID was called TWIV, This Week in Virology. It's these cranky virologists who, once a week, get together and just talk about whatever's new in virology that week. And at least 50% of them are fascinating. I learned so much about virology over the... You know, at a time when I was super interested in it. It seems light. It seems
1: like a light poppy. Listen.
2: Yes. No, it's a little heavy, but they're funny and they're cranky in this great way. I also really love... I'm a huge Tyler Cowen fan. I read his blog every day, Marginal Revolution, and I listen to his podcast, Tyler Cowan. It's called Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, I would wholeheartedly recommend his blog to everyone. It's the best collection of links on the internet every day. His interests are far and wide. His sensibility is magnificent. He's everything. I consider myself a wholly owned subsidiary of Teller County. Wow.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a big endorsement. Yeah, I'd be remiss not to ask about revisionist history since I've listened to probably 78 of the 80. What is your favorite episode? Eliza would say the Little Mermaid episode. Oh, she oh, she's in the Target demo. She loved it. But for you, what was the most fun or a couple? I love the McDonald's one personally where you talk about McDonald's the tallow versus the vegetable. Yeah. Amazing. Which stick out? If you're like, hey, if you want to get the best here, listen to this episode or a real sense of it.
2: There's two that I doubt I'll ever do on that level again. One is A Good Walk Spoiled, my kind of- The golf course one. The golf course one. Well, just explain that one quickly. That one, I just wondered why it was in Los Angeles that there were- private golf clubs with real estate on the west side of Los Angeles, the real estate had to be worth $10, $15 billion. I mean, LA Country Club, real estate is worth somewhere between 10 and $20 billion. And I wondered, well, how can they pay the property taxes on that? And that led me on a whole... Has that the, changed
1: since you taped it? Has anything changed? Nothing, the feedback nothing, you got? Nothing. Nothing no.
2: And then there was one I did that I'm really, really proud of called Elvis okay. Parapraxis Analysis yeah. about a song that Elvis couldn't sing. And it goes in all kinds of weird, wonderful directions. Which song was it? can't remember now. Okay. There was a song that was in his repertoire. And whenever he came to the verse, which was a spoken verse, he got all the words wrong. And the Freudians had a field day with this. And so I have a field day with the Freudians about why there was one song in
1: his entire repertoire we yeah. would botch every time yeah. he sang it. Amazing. Well, it's tremendous. All your works are truly amazing. It's been such a treat to have you on the show here. And again, Malcolm Gladwell, we are incredibly excited to see what you do next in Pushkin and all your other endeavors. And thank you so much for being on Kindred Cast. Thank you, Alex. It's been fun. Thanks.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.